Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Dr. Risha Desai. Increasing diversity in the healthcare workforce has emerged as an important goal in light of the raised awareness of disparities in health outcomes in the U.S. based on race and ethnicity during COVID-19. Our guest today, Dr. David Carlisle, is at the forefront of boosting efforts to create a more diverse workforce as president and CEO of the Charles R. Drew University of Medicine and Science in Los Angeles. In addition to the School of Medicine, CDU has a School of Nursing and is a leader in health disparities research with a focus on cancer, diabetes, cardiometabolic, and HIV AIDS. Before leading CDU, Dr. Carlisle taught medicine at UCLA for 20 years and spent a decade leading the California Office of Statewide Health Planning and Development. Thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. It's, um, it's indeed an honor to be here and um, looking forward to our discussion. Awesome. So let's, let's get right into it. I, I mean, I'd love to kind of rewind the clock a bit and understand what first got you excited about uh, joining the field of medicine and, and what other things were you kind of contemplating uh, when you first got in? Well, you know, that, that's a really interesting question from a personal perspective, um, in large part because my grandmother uh, was a dedicated Christian scientist, oh, wow. and my father was raised in that church as well. And I remember myself going to the mother church, quote unquote, in Boston when I was about, uh, you know, a low single digits of age. Uh, so I, I would say that my desire to pursue a medical degree was diametrically opposite trajectory than uh, that my, uh, my grandmother took on. But really, um, the reason I went to medicine, I was always a science nerd. In college, I was uh, propelled from sciences, hard science, into medicine. I also was very interested in, of course, service, serving people, serving underserved, serving under-resourced communities. And medicine provided a, a wonderful opportunity for me to fulfill that passion of mine as well. So I'll be honest, I did not expect you to include Christian science in your family history. It's very, very interesting. Uh, if you're okay with it, I'd love to kind of dive just a little bit deeper on that. What was it like for you to pursue this field when members of your family uh, were obviously of a different belief system? At the time, I was a, um, a kind of a late teenage individual, early 20s, kind of interested in blazing my own sort of trail. But really, to be sure... You know, I asked my grandmother about my interest in medicine, my desire to pursue a medical degree. And she basically said, um, essentially, more power to you. Do what you want. Follow your dreams. And whatever they are, whatever you do, I will support you. Uh, so that was, that was basically her position. And because of her embracing of my interest in medicine, I was unfettered in developing that interest. I think there's a powerful message in there. Uh, today, we have so many people that, that essentially will disavow, will break ties with people that different belief systems from them. It's a pretty interesting thing for her to support you so unconditionally uh, at that time. I imagine it, it gives uh, a young person a, a huge boost of confidence. Indeed, absolutely. And it did for me. So, you know, you've had a very interesting background, clinical experience. You also earned a master's in public health and a PhD in health sciences research. I'm curious, what, what got you interested in those fields? What inspired that, uh, that pursuit? Well, I had a hint uh, very early in college. I went to Wesleyan University in Connecticut. And um, between semesters in the middle of the winter, I wrote a paper on Kaiser Permanente, the healthcare system. 
uh, which at that time was a sort of uh, very early in its uh, developmental trajectory. When I reflect back on that, I think it was uh, the very first inkling that I had an interest in healthcare systems and healthcare delivery beyond simply um, seeing uh, one, one patient at a time. So I continued along that trajectory. It took me into um, being a, a resident at LA County Harbor UCLA Medical Center, again, caring for underserved, under-resourced individuals. Uh, so I, I would say that throughout my career, um, I've always had a, an interest in how the healthcare system beyond simply individual practitioners is able to um, embrace and address of the needs of populations in addition to individuals. So do you mind just giving our audience a brief overview of CDU and its mission? Charles R. Drew University of Medicine and Science was founded in 1966. We are very aware that we were incorporated as a direct response to the Watts uprising of 1965. Um, our university would not exist if it wasn't for the sacrifices, pain and suffering of individuals in South Los Angeles that ultimately culminated in the uh, violence of the Watts Uprising of 1965, as did other institutions such as uh, MLK County Hospital, later MLK Community Hospital, uh, Watts Health Center. Um, we're all about the community. Our university's mission is to train young people, usually from underserved, under-resourced, underrepresented populations, and turn them into healthcare practitioners who will then return to the communities that they grew up in and communities like them, and practice medicine and improve the health of those communities with excellence and compassion. That's what we do. And so given that background, you know, now that COVID is uh, clearly hitting communities of color the hardest, I'm, I'm curious to know kind of what is CDU doing to respond and what have you seen in the, in the greater community and what partnerships have you forged to, to help with that response? And early on in the pandemic, it seemed that you had to be an international traveler or um, somebody from uh, the more affluent areas of LA County to have acquired a, a diagnosis of COVID-19. But we suspected strongly that with everything in healthcare, when you look at populations that have no access, populations that have no resources, uh, populations that have no ability to acquire services, that's where you're gonna see the body of the COVID-19 pandemic. And yes, that's exactly what happened. Underserved, under-resourced communities, became the ones that were hardest hit by COVID-19. And in that sense, it's kind of a metaphor for everything in healthcare. Underserved, under-resourced, underrepresented populations have the worst outcomes across the board. Life expectancy, infant mortality, maternal mortality, preventable mortality are all worse in underserved communities. You know, one question that I think is on everyone's mind, and, and here we are thinking about Delta variant, do you imagine that it's going to be kind of a, a normal year? Is it going to be more uh, remote learning? What is your sense on that right at the moment? Yeah, uh, thank you very much for that question. Um, this is exactly where we find ourselves at, uh, at CDU. We are mandating COVID-19 vaccination for every member of our student body, every member of our faculty, every member of our staff who is going to be on campus. Uh, we are following the guidance of the LA County Health Department. We will be requiring uh, facial uh, protection and masking on campus, outdoors, as well as indoors. So one, one of the things that you said early on in, in our conversation about your family history and speaking to the fact that people with different of opinions can still support one another. I'm curious how you, in your position, go about 
implementing on a day-to-day basis things like you know vaccine mandate among employees and faculty and and how do you actually communicate that in a way that captures the empathy and compassion that I know you foster, uh, but also promoting good health and public health practices? That's a a really good question. It's a very uh, contemporary topic for us institutionally. Throughout the pandemic, we've been having weekly forums at the university where we basically um, discuss and explore topics related to COVID-19. And we've been talking about the need to be more institutionally aggressive in combating or preventing COVID-19 on our campus. We're, We're actually fortunate at CDU because we're a health professions university. Everybody at our university is either going to become a healthcare professional upon graduation, or they aspire to become a healthcare professional with few exceptions. And then you've got our faculty and our staff who are teaching these um, future health professionals or supporting future health professionals. So in terms of institutional culture, we're much more aligned with the public health needs Uh, to fight COVID-19 than most other institutions. Uh, Even a large university like like some of those in in Los Angeles, yes, they have health professions schools, but they may not necessarily be entirely a health professions institution. So it's harder to go down that pathway if you're not a health professions environment. Because we're a health professions environment, our students are already required to undergo immunizations for a variety of things before they go see patients. COVID-19 is, uh, is just another aspect of that. All this said, um, we are still having challenges with COVID-19 protocols among some persons in our community. And I say that to uh, encourage everyone who is not yet vaccinated to go get vaccinated um, because the likelihood of acquiring a Delta variant COVID-19 case is extremely high right now. So yes, I, I think that we're, we're ahead of so many other organizations because of who we are and what we do, but we still face uh, challenges, particularly with regard to vaccination ourselves. You know, one of the things that I've, I've come to appreciate during this outbreak of COVID and the Delta variant and all this is that, you know, a lot of us wear dual hats, you know, certainly we have our day job, but then you're also an ambassador of sorts. And especially in your role, like what you do and what you say has a lot of weight what do you think are some of the things that, that you've noticed from your vantage point that COVID has revealed about our healthcare system? Maybe some weaknesses that we've identified and, and ways that you think we can strengthen it. Well, one thing that we've learned um, all last summer, we were doing testing and then we transitioned on to, to doing vaccination. We definitely ramped up our testing volume when the surrounding community became aware that there were people on the CDU campus who were testing members of the community, um, people who, who spoke the same languages, people who may have been through or shared uh, with family members concerns about immigration documentation, people who shopped at the same shopping centers or may, may have gone to the same churches on weekends. This is an important message because one of those barriers that was revealed uh, or amplified by COVID-19 was trust. And trust is a big word in healthcare. You have to trust your doctor. You have to trust the surgeon. Trust is important. And when people were able to trust us in terms of coming to get um, COVID-19 testing and later vaccination, our numbers skyrocketed. And that's that just underscores how important trust is. And if you want to reach marginalized populations in general, but in healthcare as well, Uh, you've got to build a bridge based on trust. That's one very revealing factor. 
the COVID-19 pandemic just underscored uh, something that people like me wor working where I work in the healthcare system already understood. Our healthcare safety net is frayed and people are dropping between it, through it all the time. They're being lost to the healthcare system or maybe they can't even get into the healthcare system. Uh, when you work in an underserved, under-resourced, underrepresented community, you have to deal with this aspect of healthcare all the time. But if you don't, if you work in more affluent neighborhoods, communities, et cetera, you may not even be aware of the impact of this, uh, this tattered safety net. I will say that the delta between the United States and other industrialized nations in terms of healthcare outcomes, where our, our outcomes tend to be worse than most other industrialized nations, despite our astronomical spending, is mostly mediated by our failure to bring healthcare to the communities and populations that need it worst already in our own country. And COVID-19 just kind of ripped the scab off this issue so that it became much more apparent. Apologies for the medical metaphor there. It became much more apparent, but it was what people like me already knew about all the time. I think that's that's spot on. And, you know, you spent many years in state government. I'm, I'm curious what your assessment is of how government agencies have responded to COVID. Do you think that they could have done better? And specifically, at what level, local, state, county, you know, federal? I was uh, the OSHPIT director in 2002, 2003. We got exposed uh, from a policy perspective to SARS. And SARS could have taken off like wildfire. Um, but because of strong public health interventions here in Canada and China, it didn't. But that was a wake-up call. So we were kind of prepared for COVID. We didn't ever want to go there. But I remember waking up on the 4 o'clock in the morning, December 27, 2019, and seeing a, a very early report about an unknown pneumonia in Wuhan, China. And my reaction was, oh, no, I hope it's not here we go again. So we had sort of things pre-positioned to respond to COVID-19. But I think the, the pandemic got ahead of our ability to respond. The people that I know in government of public health, uh, they're all experts. They're all dedicated individuals. And they did everything that they could to combat COVID-19. And I admire their efforts. As in any kind of emerging emergency, you can't anticipate um, where the next front is going to be. And so our responses tended to, to lag reality a little bit. But on the other hand, we were also kind of ahead of reality. We knew early on, very, very early on, that we were going to have to develop vaccines to fight COVID-19 because COVID-19 is a virus. And you fight viruses for the most part with vaccines. And fortunately, we had the basic building blocks of the COVID-19 vaccines on the shelf in the NIH lab with Dr. Fauci and Dr. Kizmekia and others. We were ready to proceed and we just had to know what we were dealing with. That makes a lot of sense. I, I think, you know, from my perspective, it's frustrating because, you know, we we have, as you said, you know, good science at our disposal and our toolkit. And yet uh, it felt like at every turn, it wasn't like the governments were neutral in many cases. Sometimes it felt like they were detrimental. And, and that obviously is frustrating. You know, at our core, we're a teaching company. Uh, we love to fill knowledge gaps, yourself or an educator. I'd love to get your sense on any topic that you'd like to educate us on. It could be, you know, something that you feel like there's common myths about. It could be, you know, something that you've experienced in your own personal life. Just something that you think everyone ought to know 
uh, what would that be if you could pick one one thing to teach us? Well, I, I'd have to prioritize my response by talking in the COVID-19 context. And the reality today is that we are facing a clear and present danger uh, that has already cost the lives of 600,000 Americans, more than 3 million people around the world, and it's going to get worse. I think what we need to be able to do is speak about some of the myths around the COVID-19 vaccines that are preventing people from getting vaccinated. In many countries around the world, people are begging for COVID-19 vaccination, literally begging. Uh, they're staying indoors. They're afraid for their lives because they can't get vaccinated. In the United States, it's kind of just the opposite. Pretty much everyone who's wanted to get vaccinated has gotten vaccinated already. Now we have uh, probably roughly 30% of our population or a little bit more that just doesn't want to get vaccinated. And we know that those are the individuals who are most likely now to develop COVID-19 or most likely to get hospitalized from COVID-19. And yes, unfortunately, most likely to die from COVID-19. What can we do to get those individuals to say yes so that they can protect themselves, their families, and their communities? This is the public health issue of the past couple of decades, the biggest issue, failure to get COVID-19 vaccination because it is so transformative, the benefit of it. So I'd say if I could teach, I would speak to the myths. There are no silicon chips in the COVID-19 vaccines. There are no magnetizers. You're not going to become infertile from the vaccinations. There are no long-term side effects from the vaccines. I became you know, mildly to moderately symptomatic for a day or so after getting my, my vaccination. I would gladly undergo that a thousand more times to prevent myself from getting COVID-19. And I don't know of any other healthcare provider, really, I know there are some exceptions, who feels otherwise. I think of those uh, healthcare providers who broke down in tears. They were going to the hospital, to the emergency room, to the ICU every day. And all they had to protect themselves was a simple face mask, gowns and gloves. They were brought to tears as soon as they were told, we've got the vaccine, line up, you're going to get it. I think back to the early part of the epidemic in China, and I have an image that is seared in my memory of young women, nurses, recruited from around China to volunteer to go into Wuhan, to staff the hospitals where the existing nursing staff had gotten sick, some of them had died. These were all women that in their, their 20s, maybe their early 30s. And they had cut off all their hair because at that time, people thought that having long hair would give the virus a vector to infect the individual. They were gathered in a group photograph. They were smiling, they were hugging, they were waving their hands, and they were going to the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic. This is over a year ago. I just have to ask the question, how many of those young women are still alive today? I don't know of a single healthcare provider, nurse, doctor, respiratory therapist, who said, forget it, I'm out of here, this is too dangerous for me. And they answered the bell. And we know that 20% of the deaths early on were of healthcare, healthcare providers in this country. Um, these are people who are making the ultimate sacrifice to protect individuals, especially today, individuals who are not vaccinated. You know, they're making the sacrifice for you, those who are not vaccinated, please return their favor and get vaccinated so that you don't endanger them and they don't have to take care of you when you're dying from COVID-19. 
Wow, that's that's an incredible impassioned plea um, and quite an image uh, that you're drawing up of, of those women uh, that were going out to the front lines. Um, you know, I think another group that often gets um, forgotten, as you just pointed out, is essential workers, you know, folks like bus drivers and folks that have to keep essential services going. They didn't sign up to be part of a pandemic. They signed up to get a paycheck oftentimes for their families and they have to be out there and they're not privileged enough to have positions that allow them to be at lower risk, uh, to work from home, things like that. So I really, really appreciate you you calling that out. You know, we have so many students in the, in the audience, uh, early career health professionals that are probably looking at your career and thinking, gosh, it's so, so interesting how you've kind of jumped around and moved around and, and stayed true to a lot of the things that you believe in uh, deep down in your heart. I'd be really uh, interested to hear your advice for them as they're maybe starting their career in healthcare. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I have a lecture. It's, uh, the title of it is, is, So You Want to Be a Doctor. It's kind of the inside story about being a pre-med student and then becoming a, a medical student, et cetera. One thing I point out is this is not like being a lawyer. It's not like getting an MBA. Being a doctor, being a healthcare professional of any type is dangerous. There is danger here. Uh, we don't know when we go to work uh, whether that's going to be the day that we might contract hepatitis, we might contract HIV, we might contract COVID-19. You know, I can see one person, one moment who is a HIV-infected homeless individual. My next patient could be a corporate CEO. That's one of the other beauties of healthcare, and one of the inspiring beauties is that when we're doing things the right way. Our doors are open to everybody. I implore people when they're thinking about healthcare and you're seeing patients, um, think about the patients that can't see you because they don't have health insurance, not just the patients that are in your waiting room. So those are two things. The third thing I would say is if there's a word that describes people who transition uh, through college into medical school, into residency, into becoming doctors or dentists or pharmacists, et cetera, that word is tenacity. Very few of us are so brilliant and so successful that we never face a uh, academic or even personal challenge during our careers. Every student that I know um, has had to pick themselves up off the ground and start over again on their way to becoming a doctor, dentist, pharmacist, et cetera. I myself, I was a very good, excellent science student coming out of high school. I thought I could handle college sciences easily. My very first biology test that I took, I got a 50. I flunked it. And I basically said, whoa, wake up call. If you want to be pre-med, you've got to do something different here. I turned things around in a class with more than 100 students. I, I got the third highest grade on the, the final examination. I actually got an A on the course. Fast forward to medical school. I'm kind of floundering around going, um, this is not like studying science in college. It's different. How do I do things differently? I wasn't doing well in anatomy. And I said, well, you're going to start memorizing stuff. And I started memorizing. I was up until two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning with flashcards. I turned my performance in anatomy around. We've all faced challenges and um, all of us have had to overcome the challenges successfully in order to progress through our training. And it just goes on and on and on. 
Well, that's uh, that's a remarkable thing for you to share with us. I think a lot of folks see someone that is as accomplished as you are, and it's hard to imagine that you uh, had to overcome something like a low score. You know, if I may, Rishi, um, healthcare is the process of overcoming defeat. Every one of us has lost a patient, not just lost a patient, but lost a patient that we've tried to save. Whether it's a 15-year-old trauma victim in the emergency room, whether it's a um, 80-year-old patient that we're trying to send home who goes into sudden cardiac arrest and doesn't survive, uh, we've all faced those challenges. Part of being a healthcare professional is knowing how to incorporate failure into being successful. Um, I've had to go from one room where I'm doing a code blue on a patient to the next room to see my next patient and say, hello, how are you doing this morning? You know, you have to be able to do that to become a healthcare professional. Yeah, it's a very sobering reminder of, of what the day-to-day requires of clinicians. And going back to your earlier point of really making sure that everyone in society has their backs by getting vaccinated and making sure that we all do our part uh, to, to get through this. So it's a good note to end on. And I want to thank you for joining the show today. Thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, thank you, osmosis.org and Raise the Line for including me in the discourse today. I appreciate it. I'm Risha Desai. Thank you for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.